Hello and welcome to Cup of Tea, a friendly, patient and gentle space for honest discussion and debate. So today we're going to be discussing childhood. There'll be quite a lot from me about my own experiences and why they've particularly come to mind over the past few weeks. But we're also going to start pondering some of the questions around post-surgical um, regret and the controversial um, subject of detransition. Hello, this is our first episode uh, in a couple of weeks. That's our cat Cyril waiting to say hello. Um, it's been a difficult couple of weeks, um, I think, which is why we've had a bit of a uh, break, uh, collect our thoughts, work out what it is uh, we want to do with the podcast. So um, we thought we'd start off with Cyril being really irritating and maybe talk about the tea we're going to drink today, Harry. Yes, well, appropriately, because Cyril is a ginger cat, we have ginger tea. So this is three gingers tea from the Pucker Tea Collection. You should have set it up a bit more, but I've just sipped it, sorry, I couldn't wait. And it's really, really nice. It's very nice. It's kind of spicy and earthy all at once. So it's got a bit of turmeric in, apparently, uh, with um, obviously ginger. Yes, yeah. Cyril, you are ginger. And... Yeah, it's kind of quite a weirdly subtle ginger. Yeah, it's a little it's bit not... fiery, but not as bad as you'd think. No, it's not as fiery as a lemon and ginger. Um, and it feels very cleansing, yeah. I think I would say. Very Brilliant. nice. Well, should we uh, shut Cyril out of should. the room and yeah, get on with the get rest on with of the, show. the pod- podcast? So, do you want to share with our listeners why we're talking about uh, childhood first? Yes, so my parents are in the process of moving house and to help them out with this they've brought down lots of boxes of my childhood drawings, diaries, cuddly toys, schoolwork etc to the house um, for me to sort through. Um, So last weekend I had a very, a mixture of funny and sad and happy and a huge range of emotions really all at once day of looking through all of that um, sorting out what I'm going to keep what I was going to get rid of um, but mainly sort of reminiscing really um, and seeing a whole lot of stuff which I'd either forgotten about or perhaps suppressed over the past few years. And uh, the really interesting thing well it was all interesting seeing um parts of you uh, from your childhood that i hadn't kind of known about before um but the other thing was the photos yes um so my mum did a very thoughtful thing um so she separated out my photos and she gave me a lot of photos of me looking my most boyish if you like um from probably the ages of being a baby up till maybe about 10 years old I think is probably the oldest um and yeah I think I was lucky in a way um that my mum would quite often dress me in boys or boyish clothes partly because we had male cousins and friends who just had babies and yeah it was it was cheaper for 
my mum to use those hand-me-downs to dress me in. Um, so a lot of the pictures of me do look very boyish naturally. And then as I got older, it was my choice to um, to have my hair short and to wear more boyish clothes, um, which my mum was very good about sort of day to day. Um, for special occasions, I would still have to get dressed up in sort of Sunday best girls clothes, um, but they were very few and far between. And I think it wasn't till I was about 11 in high school that I started to grow my hair longer. So, yeah, actually, for for somebody probably who didn't know, seeing the photos of me, they would just think they were looking at a little boy. And it's only, I suppose, people who know my gender history who wouldn't know that. Because when I kind of was looking at the photos with you, it was really amazing, actually, because I really felt like I was suddenly part of the first part of your life. Yeah. In a way that I haven't really felt. Yes. Before. Um, so firstly, thank you for obviously sharing that <laughs> with me. Uh, and also you were the most adorably nerdy kind of boy mm-hmm. that I've seen <laughs> uh, anyone except for me. And <laughs> for our listeners, uh, it is particularly amusing that both of us have uh, a photo where we are both wearing waistcoats. Mm-hmm. Not just any waistcoats, hideous knitted waistcoats. Well, yours was knitted. Mine was a nice sort of velvet-backed, yes. silk-fronted yeah. waistcoat. So, uh, yeah, I think I probably came off better in that one. Yeah, although they're both very 90s. Yeah, they are quite hideous. Mm. But, you know, I think probably it means we were destined to be together. Yeah. Two, two, <laughs> two waistcoats on yeah. a on a lonely rack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so what sort of difficult feelings did it kind of bring up then, if you don't mind sharing some of them? Of course. Um, like I said at the start, a big mixture, and it's quite difficult to sort of tease them all out, actually. Um, I think happiness, because seeing everything, pictures and drawings and schoolwork, reminded me of a lot of happy memories. You know, I was I was lucky enough to grow up with a very loving family, a very stable family background, um, a very nice primary school that I went to, um, where I had lots of friends and was able to pursue a lot of interest in music and sports and things that I was interested in. Um, so a lot of the, the things I looked at reminded me of those good times, particularly things like funny plays that me and my sister had done or stories that we told with our cuddly toys or Barbie dolls or Lego and things. And then I suppose there was the other side. There was the sadness of the particularly the diaries from when I was older as a teenager and just how horrible school was for me, really, from puberty onwards. And a real, probably a big sense of loneliness. And I suppose, I suppose a big sense through all of it, in a way, of both happiness and thankfulness for the life I had lived and the experiences I had. And a real awareness, I think, particularly as you get older, I think you maybe appreciate more, like, sacrifices that parents made and money that they spent and 
experiences that they tried hard to give me so a lot of thankfulness for that um of things like music lessons yeah the fact we you know had a garden and allotment that I could play on and like learn how to plant flowers and things um you know lots of kids would never have experiences like that so I can't help but feel thankful for those experiences but there's also a sense of regret I think of the life that I didn't get to live an experience um, of being a young boy and a young man and the experiences I might have had had I you know been able to be born in a body that matched the gender in my head of you know things like playing football and rugby unfortunately the secondary schools I went to were very the sports were very gendered so I never had the chance to to play those and I've always wanted to, as one of the big things I've always felt the most regret about, I think, is not being able to play rugby, um, because I've always loved it. And there were so many pictures that I'd drawn as a kid of rugby players and football players. And it was clear that, you know, that's something that I would love to have done. So, yeah, I think there is that regret. And I suppose the difficulty of almost reconciling the two lives that I had of the life before transition and the life after and sometimes you almost feel I've lived two or maybe even three lives of you know up to puberty of really feeling you know like I was a boy and being able to live most of the time as as a boy um, or certainly as a tomboy and then puberty and feeling like I have to sort of live as a girl and be a girl and do all those things and then the post-transition life, really, of going back and sort of, yeah, probably carrying on from, from where I was, uh, maybe up until the age of 10. So, yeah, a big mixture. But I think the probably the the big thing also, actually, was it was very validating, um, seeing the kind of evidence of my transness, if you like, from such an early age kind of made me feel yeah yeah I definitely did make the right choice and um yeah I think that probably leads on quite nicely into our next topic it definitely does and thank you for sharing uh, those memories and thoughts with us no problem So one of the other things we wanted to talk about today was around uh, regret. This comes up a lot uh, in some of the conversations around uh, trans-surgical uh, intervention, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, so I suppose for me, you know, I was thinking about one particular operation and one in five people regret this operation. That's 20% in this particular study. They undergo uh, this surgical procedure expecting a significant change in the quality of their life. And afterwards, things tend to be the same or worse uh, and they feel uh, regret and they tend to spiral um, but you don't really hear that much about it in the news um, and actually I suppose when I was looking into this operation I thought we actually probably do perform far too many hip replacement mm. surgeries <laughs> um, because actually one in five people doesn't refer to any trans-related operations that's uh, hip replacement surgery um, it's also interesting 
that in cosmetic surgery, um, that is kind of facelifts, kind of nip and tuck, anything you like there, um, two thirds of British patients in later studies uh, are recorded as regretting their decision. Wow. But you don't really see that much of it in the news, really. No. You know, particularly the hip replacement thing. You know, I'd expect there to be um, kind of articles about de-hippers <laughs> uh, or de-cosmeticans. Yes. Uh, you know, let's invent some words for it and create a moral panic. Um, so anyway, I decided to look at some of the research around transgender uh, detransition, which we'll talk about in more detail in the next uh, session, uh, but particularly focusing on surgical regret. Now, given that... 20% of people who have a hip replacement uh, regret it, and uh, two-thirds, 66% roughly, uh, regret their decision to have cosmetic surgery. Given how fully this is in the news, I was expecting there to be 80-90% uh, regret rates. Um, so I did some digging uh, and found a study uh, from 1960 all the way until 2010, mm -hmm. uh, a 50-year study uh, analysing all applications for sex reassignment surgery in Sweden, uh, the prevalence, incidence and levels of regret. So we said hip replacement, 20%, mm -hmm. you don't hear about it at all. Uh, cosmetic surgery, two-thirds, you don't really hear about it. So on that basis, what do you reckon for uh, reassignment surgery? I have no idea, but I'm going to go for 10%. Okay. Do you want to know the actual answer? Yes, please. 2.2%. Really? Yeah. Wow. And that's over 50 years. Yes. Now, you know, there are some interesting questions people pose about uh, kind of regret and particularly detransition. Um, you know, I think some people do talk about the fact that uh, cases are much higher nowadays. Um, and I think uh, people have raised some concerns about... Um, you know, the speed in which people get uh, treatment. Mm. So I suppose it's the same sort of almost moral panic, I think, uh, as to um, the higher prevalence of autism diagnoses. Yes. Uh, which I know me and you have talked about a lot, uh, kind of, on our own. And it is very much, for me, like one of those moral panics. Mm. Uh, oh, no, we have a lot more autistic people therefore something must be causing it, mm. therefore it must be vaccines. Or, oh no, a lot more people are coming out as trans mm. and uh, asking to be treated in the gender they identify and asking to um, have the support they need to le lead that life. So, oh no, they must be wrong, they, mm. they must be uh, misguided or, or confused. Um, and I think this particularly strikes a chord with me in terms of the surgical regret yes um because obviously i've talked about kind of in vague terms some of my operations that i've had um, and i've had a lot of them around my legs and some of them i've really regretted and some of them i haven't mm. um and i was looking for similar uh, kind of statistics about regret around uh, kind of people with club foot talipes which is what i have and it's just really interesting, and I think this will be a thread that goes through into the next conversation, is that the analysis of regret or the outcomes from a lot of surgical um, interventions tends to be very medicalised, mm. as you'd expect, because it's a medical of procedure. Course. Yeah. Um, but looking at some of the literature around club foot surgical interventions, a lot of it is about, you know, it, it feels really depersonal reading it because they talk about 
smoothness of gait mm. <laughs> or um, lack of limp or mm. presence of high level pain you know and it it doesn't really speak to the feelings of regret I have which is months in a hospital mm. being in Sheffield hundreds of miles away from my family when I was very young yes you know those are the sorts of regrets I have which are I suppose social yes um so anyway, those were sort of my thoughts on sort of surgery. I don't know if you'd... I've just kind of dumped all that on you in a big, massive pile. But... No, that's very interesting because actually I think a lot of the experiences that you've talked about with Clubfoot and your operations there and how regret is, as you say, very medicalised, um, it, it chimes a lot with what I've read because... Yeah, I've had a look at some studies of um, particularly genital surgery for trans men um, because when I first came out, it was a very polarising sort of topic, if you like. I guess it still is, actually, of some trans men saying, oh, this surgery's rubbish, why would you bother with it? It doesn't look real. And other trans men saying, I, I have to have this surgery, I don't feel like a complete man without the surgery and it's something that yeah I think I've always wanted to know more about and to sort of read all about my options and a lot of the time in the reviews of trans men's surgery they will talk about things in very medicalized terms like satisfaction with size ability to go to the toilet standing up which again is only focusing on the medical success and it's not focusing with how do you feel? Certainly from the, I remember from chest surgery that I had, how actually the kind of post-operative depression is a thing and people don't talk to you about it. And that's the case for any surgery. But yeah, it can be quite shocking, I think, when you have a surgery that you really want, but afterwards you feel really quite depressed because partly the effect of medication you're on partly because you're very helpless. You have, you know, particularly for when you have genital surgery as a trans person, one of the operations you can have as a trans man, the phalloplasty, can be very extreme, if you like, in that you have one arm out of action, two legs out of action because you may have had skin grafts from them to cover your arm, as well as obviously your genital area being very uncomfortable so like actually you're you're having an operation which is taking your body from physically healthy to in a lot of pain but it's the effect on your brain that's what's that's what's important like you know for some for some people that operation you know that it's going to hurt you know it's going to be difficult you know you're going to be reliant on friends or family to come and help you you know that you might have not as much money because you might you know you might not get sick pay in your job or something but ultimately all of that doesn't matter because it's the result at the end that sense of belonging in your body that's really important so yeah probably quite a lot of waffle but in conclusion no, that's really good basically the same as as what you said i think it's and, yeah. and i think you know in terms of what you were just saying you know there's short-term regret there's short-term pain and, and struggles 
but actually when you look at the only long-term study that has been done it's 2.2 percent yeah which when you look at the comparison with uh hip replacement surgery which nobody bats an eyelid no with no i mean i don't i'm not being disingenuous i'm a fully aware that hip replacement surgery is not as intensive as uh you know um sex sort of based surgery um but still you know mm. i would expect that to be talked about a little bit more given yeah. that it seems to be the default solution for a lot of older people yeah, with of their hip issues yeah um but you don't sort of have a big movement of people calling for them to be cancelled no so. no no well that's uh, regret then uh, so i think we probably need to move on to the probably controversial part of the podcast yes okay so we felt we had to address um the tricky topic of detransition there's been a lot of talk in the media um around detransition and particularly young people and the fear some people have of young people doing something that they'll later regret and there's also a term that's been used a lot called rapid onset gender dysphoria are you able to explain that for listeners of course um so the idea of rapid onset gender dysphoria which tends to be a term used by detractors or opponents of trans people is that young people will maybe spend time with friends or they might be reading on the internet about being trans and suddenly get an idea in their head one day that they're trans and they'll come out and they'll change their name and pronouns and they'll get hormones and have surgery and suddenly in a few years as quick as it's come on it will go away and they'll be like oh dear I've had all this surgery that I didn't need so I guess there's a few things to say about that. The first is the statistics. So we've already talked about that. That really big study covering over 50 years and the really low rate of people feeling regret or wanting to detransition. So actually, statistically, it's pretty unlikely that that will happen. And second of all, I think it's a misunderstanding of the trans experience i think a lot of trans people on the face of it do very quickly come out but certainly from my experience and from that of my friends and yeah probably most trans people i've talked to is that it's not that you suddenly become trans it's that you suddenly realize that you are and in that respect it's like it's like being gay. You don't suddenly wake up one day being, oh, I'm a man, I love men, or I'm a woman, I love women. But slowly you piece together those clues over your life and suddenly realise, oh yeah, that's what I am. And certainly from my experience, as a child, I always felt that I was a boy and I would absolutely scream the place down if I had to wear a dress and... As I said earlier in the podcast, I had short hair, I wore boys' clothes most of the time, but I didn't have the vocabulary and I wouldn't have had that awareness, probably until I hit puberty, that that was what the difficulty was. And even then, I I didn't know what the word was or how to explain it. And in fact, it wasn't until I got to university 
and had more access to the internet and there was more forums and Facebook and all of those kind of resources that I actually discovered that trans men even existed. The only knowledge I had of trans people at all was probably very negative sort of um, like Jeremy Kyle, uh, Jerry Springer type chat shows with trans people on or people like Little Britain with their very um, problematic portrayals of, of trans women. Um, so yeah, I didn't even know that we were a thing really. Um, so yeah, I think that's one part of it. And I think the other thing I kind of wanted to say about that was, do you know what, even if it is a phase, it's not going to be quick and chances are if it is a phase your child or young person who might be thinking they might be trans may well if it is a phase grow out of it by the time it takes to actually access any kind of physical intervention i think there's this kind of myth that trans people can suddenly one day decide they're trans and the next day can be on hormones or having surgery the first thing to say is that in the UK, under 16s, I think in fact under 18s, can only have hormone blockers. They can't take hormones of, you know, to correct them, their body to the, the right physical sex for them. And they certainly can't have surgery. You have to be 18 to be able to access that. And... At the moment, the waiting times for adult gender clinics are about two years at minimum. So you have a huge amount of time to think everything through before you get any kind of physical intervention. And even if you go private, you still have to have the same two appointments before you can get hormones. So it's not quick. It's also difficult, isn't it? Because I think people who might be uh, sceptics or people who are ready to be convinced uh, might hear that and think, well, actually, some of the reforms then that people are proposing to make things go easier um, might remove some of those protections mm. uh, from this idea it's a phase. Now, I can understand why, if you are from a sort of heteronormative kind of background and maybe you don't have any gay children or have any gay people in your life or trans people in your life or you know any of these things could be uh, a bit of a shock of course you know and um it is really interesting because every time i hear about these concerns about young trans people um kind of jumping into something they're not ready i just remember you know hearing from people you know, some people sometimes that I loved very much saying, oh, well, it's a phase, you will go out of it, or, you know, don't put yourself at risk because you think you're gay. Mm. You know, and I think there is, this is hard for me to say when you're kind of in the room, there is a natural feeling sometimes from people that I can understand. I, I don't forgive and I don't approve of it mm. or agree, but there is that instinctive oh what if they're wrong and they've gone through all of these uh, processes and you know I think one of the things I am rambling a bit here just because it's a difficult conversation but I do think we we do need to approach people who have detransitioned uh, with a real gentleness 
Definitely. Because for people who have detransitioned, after going through all of that pain to come back, mm. um, that that is difficult. I suppose one of the things I would say for any sort of sceptical listeners um, is that actually the majority of detransition happens pre-physical mm. uh, sex surgery. Yeah. Um, so actually most people haven't ever gone kind of the full journey no. before they transition. So I think there is something about the process at the moment which um, it is sort of working in terms of that side, but it feels to me like the whole system at the moment is predicated on this idea of not believing people. Yes. And thereby, in an attempt... And I don't think this is what the system tries to do, actually. I think the system is just broken. Mm. And one of the unforeseen consequences is it delays everything. Yes. But that's not a good thing, because for this 2.2% of people then, what are we saying that the other 98% of people need to go through this long, shuddering, mm. juddering process, which is just full of pain and, and delay? Yeah. Well, I don't think that's necessarily fair. No, no. Um. Yeah, and... Needless to say, I would absolutely agree with you. And I think I think we should, we'll probably draw that to a close there, but hopefully this has helped sort of give an, an introduction to, to these topics, which I'm sure we'll come back to at a later time. But yeah, if you'd like some, to read some more of the resources, um, what we could do is maybe post the links for the surveys on our Twitter um, and on our Instagram so don't forget to look for cup of tea on both of those and yeah we will see you next week for some more tea and some more conversation thank you